buzz that I was empowered to go from just a guy who trained well but worked hard to now a guy who put intention behind everything I did. So now every exercise selection, every the way I did every exercise, the order that I Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast, where we just sat down with our first guest and we interviewed Ben Pakulski, and it was a swolsational interview. Ben's impressive resume in the fitness industry stemmed from his bodybuilding career, and he talked about how he got into it and his mentality towards the gym and how it was different than everyone else's. Ben strived to be the best in the world, and he took an approach to bodybuilding that before his time was never seen by anyone else. Ben then talked about his influences in bodybuilding affected his life outside of the gym, affected his family life, and affected his business. So while some people's favorite machine in the gym is the vending machine, that's not the case for Ben. So super excited to share this interview with everyone. So it's coming up next. Also, today's episode is sponsored by Canadian Blood Services at blood.ca. Be sure to donate blood every 60 days if you're male, 90 days if you're female, and uh, blood, it's in you to give. This podcast, I am your host, Chris Fudge. And today we sit down with someone very special and influential to anyone who has ever lifted a dumbbell, a barbell, flexed in the mirror, ever thought twice about stepping on a BOSU ball to build muscle. He won his Canadian championship in his pro car 2008, competed two Mr. Olympias, the creator of the number one muscle building program, MI40, host of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, Canada's greatest export of Canadian beef, the intelligent bodybuilder, BPAC, Ben Pakulski. Welcome, my friend. It's an absolute honor and privilege. Um, as you know, man, I'm a fan of yours. I've become a fan of yours, so I'm very grateful to be here and talk to your audience. Awesome, awesome. You are our, our very first guest. Um, so I know you were a very busy man, especially interacting with you for the last five, six weeks through your mentorship program. Um, so I uh, thank you in advance for being here. And I just want to kind of get, get right into it today. So I try not to be busy, man, just to speak to that. I, I, hate, the, I hate the moniker of saying I'm busy. I just very much value my time. And, and there's things that I want to spend all my time on. So I'm, I'm here with you, man. Like, we don't have to be in a rush. I value our time together. So uh, I just don't give everyone in the world my time. Okay. Now yeah. I feel ex extra privileged. <laughs> Appreciate that. Your history you are known as a bodybuilder first. That's how I heard of you. Myself has always been a fan of bodybuilding. Like anyone else, you start lifting weights to better yourself, to look good. And I remember hearing about you as the intelligent bodybuilder and the Canadian bodybuilder, because Canada has not had a lot of bodybuilders really go far, say like the Mr. Olympia and stuff. When you did bodybuilding, your drive was to be the best in the world. I've heard you say that. You said you, you went to a show from an early age. You said, I want to be the best in the world. My first question for you is, was that an obsession or was that just a goal? And it's funny because when you say that, I get this, this fire that burns in my belly. When I just say it to be the best in the world, and that's all I could feel every time I would say that in my mind. It was just this fire that burned in my belly. And I didn't know where it came from. It was just there. And it was definitely the, the fire that fueled my journey. And it was... It was a goal that turned into an obsession and uh, <clears throat> at times it wasn't a healthy obsession, but it was the only way I knew how to do it. And people ask me all the time, could I have done it differently? Many things I could have done differently, but the obsession part, I don't think I would could have done differently. I don't think I would have done differently. I think to be the best in the world at anything, maybe there's people who become the best in the world at things and they're not obsessed, but to do to come from where I came from, the story that I have behind my 
my past, my childhood, and get to where I got, obsession was a necessity. And that's why it grew to that, because it was the only way that I was capable. I had so many things, at least psychologically, standing in my way, that the only way I knew how to get to the highest level was crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And whatever it took to win that show or place high at that show and be my absolute best is what I was going to do. So not doing it wasn't an option. So I was just literally, okay, whatever I have to take, whatever I have to, to cut out of my life to get to where I want to go, that's the goal. And, and so then obsession was the result of that. It wasn't like I didn't set out to become obsessed. I didn't start out, out being obsessed. I just said, if I want to be Mr. Olympia or very close to be Mr. Olympia, that's how I had to get there. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why, why bodybuilding? What was it about bodybuilding that attracted you to it? It, it I- wasn't a conscious thing, brother. It was an un- completely unconscious thing. It was, you know, like love at first sight when they talk about you meeting your soulmate. That was me in bodybuilding. And that's not an exaggeration. So maybe not exactly. But so when I was 15, I started at the YMCA in, in Toronto. And uh, I liked training, but I just did it because I thought it made me faster to play baseball and football and hockey. And, and then I joined Max Gym, which is M-A-C-K-S, Max Gym. And Max was this 87-year-old uh, welder who was also a bodybuilder. And as soon as I joined that place, I just could feel it in my soul. I quit everything so I could be, be a bodybuilder. Like I was a great baseball player. I had bought, bought baseball scholarships. I had, you know, could have probably played football. And I just I didn't want to do it. So I'd get up every morning before school and I'd go train. And after school, I'd skip football practice to go train. Everyone goes, what are you doing? And I'm just like, man, that's all I want to do. So I went from 160 pound, 155 pound uh, long distance runner to probably like 230 pounds in uh, less than a year, just about maybe about a year. And that was my obsession, man. That was, it was all I wanted to do. I, I, I heard on a podcast once you talk about your dad taking you to Mr. Olympia is a, mm-hmm. like a 15 year old kid. 17. Yeah. 17, 17, 17 yeah. year old kid. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Like you walked in and, and you saw stuff and then. Yeah. I picked up my first flex magazine at 15 and I was, I thought it was gross. I was like, I don't ever want to look like that. By 17, I was reading probably muscle and fitness. It's not quite flex. Yeah. It was probably muscle and fitness or maybe it was muscle mag. And there was an ad for the Olympia and it was probably like three weeks from the date. And I I opened up the mag to my dad and I showed him like, hey dad, can we go to this? He goes, sure. It was completely just joking. Like I was half joking and half serious. And he goes, sure. So we ended up going. It was 1998 and it was the first year Coleman won. And I was 17 years old. And I was literally 160, maybe 170 pounds at that point. And I went down there. I remember taking pictures of all the top bodybuilders, which I still have, which is comical. And, uh, and then the next year I ended up going back. So that year I committed to myself, like this is what I want to do. And the next year I went back and I was 230 or 235 or something like that. And having put on all that weight and 70 pounds or something in a year, 75 pounds. And by that point, people were now interviewing me as being the next future masked monster of the IFPB. So in 12 months, I went from the 17-year-old, you know, scrawny weakling to a guy that people were interviewing for magazines, which was interesting and uh, probably encouraging at the same time. And then probably that same year, I started, I got a sponsorship from Muscle Tech. So like within the first 18 months of me really taking bodybuilding seriously, uh, I started having people like, give me stuff. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. Now I'm getting recognition for something. Like, this is fun. And I was just obsessed, man. I was, I loved it. And at the time, like you don't view it as obsession. You're like, this is just all I love. Yeah. That's really how that worked out, man. It was so surprising that my dad took me the first year. And the fact that he took me back the second year was again, mind blowing. My dad and I didn't have a very good relationship going up. We had more of a transactional relationship. 
So if I asked for something, I usually got it. So I guess that was a blessing. That's a lot of success in the early days for you to be able to do some of those things. And get a spot. I went from a long distance runner. I went from a long distance runner to being basically training two to three times a day. So muscle building came relatively fast, even though it wasn't all muscle. Most of it might've been, but it was just, yeah, I did grow fast. Yeah. Were you, so you were a small kid and then all of a sudden you put on a bunch of size and he said it was quite quick. You were training a lot. I imagine that mm-hmm. your nutrition changed a little bit when you went that route. I when was you- a vegetarian when I started, okay. so I wasn't eating any meat. Yeah, that, that, that changed, right? Like I think just adding meat back in was probably 25 or 20, 25 pounds by itself. And you add training, you know, usually twice a day, almost every day on top of that, whether right or wrong at the point at the time didn't matter. I just went in the gym twice a day and did whatever I saw when I was doing. I knew nothing about what I was doing. So yeah, that's, yeah, it was a big shift. And so, you know, and I hired a coach pretty quickly. I hired, I hired Canadian coach, Scott Abel pretty quickly. And Scott just put me on the, the, the seafood diet. You just got to grow kid. So yeah, the first 75 pounds was quick. And then after that, it was much slower. Yeah. I remember being a young guy myself and I asked my dad for protein one year for Christmas yep. and he got, he got me these two pound tubs. Yeah. It was the GNC brand. And on it, it said, take one to two scoops three times a day. And I said, why would I wait that much time? Why don't I just take it all at once? <laughs> so I literally took a blender, filled it with right. milk and then threw six scoops in and I was 60 kilos. So 130 pounds right. and I sat there and it took me a half hour to drink it, but I drank it all right. I lied on the couch and passed out. It was like, <laughs> I just dummy 12 beer. I was out cold right. for two hours. My stomach woke me up being like, this wasn't a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. My first supplement was also by my dad. I bought ripped fuel and it was by uh, twin lab way back in the day. It was probably, I was probably 17. And it was, I remember all I remember was like an app is in the bottle. I was like, I want this. And my dad's like, all right. So again, that was my first supplement. I remember it clear as day. Very cool. Very cool. I've heard people say this a lot because I work in a gym. So I hear this quite frequently. When you see someone who's got a lot of muscle in the gym, they say things like, they're like, oh, I could be bigger than him. I could be bigger than her. I could be a pro bodybuilder if I just did things like steroids and stuff. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say this before and be like, no, you can't do what I do. And then I've seen videos of you training in your day. And man, like no one can do what you do. Like you train so hard. Well, like how was that? What kind of mindset did you need to have to train as intense? I wanted, I wanted to. I wanted to beat everyone that I trained with. So I had two training partners who were the only guys that I didn't really intentionally want to hurt. And everyone else, I just wanted to make you're uh, not as good. So I would intentionally find weakness. I was like a bloodthirsty animal. I would find something you're not good at, and I would just exploit it. And just trying to beat down your psyche. And and I just. The truth of the matter is why that became my reality is because I grew up in, a, in an overweight uh, family and a lot of people are alcoholics or, or there's a lot of drug use. And I, I attached psychologically to being a very lazy kid. So I had a lot of pain around people calling me lazy, particularly my dad. And I didn't ever want anyone to think I was lazy. I wanted to be known as the hardest working guy in the room. So it was this kind of away from behavior, right? Like I don't ever want anyone to say I'm lazy. So I did twice as much as everybody else. So no one could ever say I'm lazy. And I remember walking into Gold's gym and gosh, this would have been 2004, maybe like before I'd ever got a pro card, probably even before I ever competed, maybe, maybe right around the first time I competed, which was 2005. And, uh, you know, I stood outside and I looked at it, the Mecca, and I was like, man, I'm going to walk in here 
And I want everyone to say I'm the hardest working guy they've ever seen. And that was every time I knew somebody was in the gym or even if I knew nobody was in the gym, I was still going going and going. I was like, somebody's watching. I'm going to show them. I'm going to prove to them that I deserve this. And that just became my reputation. And then I would, then when you know that's your reputation, then one, you got to uphold it. And two, you want to just crush people. It became fun for me because it it was hard, but it was rewarding, right? It was like, I was moving toward the discomfort. I was moving toward the pain. I enjoyed the pain because I knew the pain is where my growth existed. So again, whether or not that's a healthy obsession remains to be seen, but it certainly served me. It's not the first time that I've heard anyone talk about this, about searching out the pain and stuff. And when you look at professional athletes, one thing that's different from them and average people and then below average people is their tolerance for discomfort, their tolerance yeah. for pain. You see it in endurance sports all the time, cycling and running. The people who did best were able to tolerate more pain. Yeah. Skilled sports, say basketball, like James Harden go to the strip club on a Friday and then drop 40 points the next day. That, yeah. That's different. But if you are putting on muscle like yourself, you had to endure a, lo- a lot of pain. So did I think you- that's why I discovered meditation also is like that deepest depths of your heart is set almost becomes a meditative. It has to become a meditative experience because you're intentionally moving into the pain rather than becoming mindless. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's really, I think, how I unconsciously discovered meditation is I was going so deep into these sets and I couldn't reproduce them at will. It was like, I, what was that? How did I go so far in that set? And next time I come back to the gym, I can't reproduce that. So I started breaking down the skill and I was like, well, if I do this outside of the gym, maybe it'll be better if I can, or I'll be more capable of applying it inside the gym. That's really like 2007 is when I started a meditation practice and meditation is focus. Training is focus. Focus is a superpower. I mean, you train your focus, you get better at everything. You get better at business, you get better at relationships, you get better at training, whatever it is. So I started meditating and I was like, gosh, I'm, I'm so much more capable of enduring the discomfort and even embracing the discomfort at times. So that's really how that all began. Was there ever like roadblocks where you said, there's no way I can get to here. And then through mindset or meditation, you found a way to get beyond it. And there was many roadblocks, but I think they're often self-imposed. And for whatever whatever reason, there were certainly maybe instances where I doubted myself, but it was very seldom for whatever reason, man, everyone along the way is you can't do that. You won't be able to make it all the way. You'll never be a pro bodybuilder. And I just, for whatever reason, uh, maybe, maybe it was outwardly, maybe it was inwardly. I just never doubted it. I was just like, I didn't think I would ever stop. So bodybuilding is all I ever wanted to do. It's the only thing I ever loved. So I just knew that no matter what it took, I was going to keep going and going until I did it. And that's my badge of honor as a human. Is like, I don't fail at things because it may take me twice as long as everybody else, but I'm not going to stop. And that, uh, I think, is what allowed me to have confidence in my ability to go where I went. And yeah, maybe it took me longer than it could have other people, but I certainly enjoyed it and, and I accomplished some cool stuff. Yeah, one of, my, one of my favorite quotes from Arnold, there's a woman who says, I don't want to look like you. And he looks and says, you never will. Because oh, the, yeah. the mind says, you can't do what I do. Yeah. And, um, Man, it, that, that goes so deep. It's like most people say, I don't know if you would have heard this kind of stuff, but when I was competing, I would get people that come up all the time. I'm walking around 320 pounds at 6% body fat. And people go, oh, my son looks like you. He's built just like you. I used to be built just like you. And you're just like rolling your eyes and going, okay, man. Uh, Yeah, you used to be a Mr. Olympia competitor too, right? And I never said anything, man. I was like, okay, cool. That's awesome. But people just have no regard or no idea for what actually goes into it behind the scenes. And and even watching guys walk on the Lister Olympia stage just a couple weeks ago, 
they have no regard for what actually goes into it. So my level of appreciation for those guys is astronomical because I know the discomfort they go through just to get to that level of body fat. I know the amount of work and time that goes into building that amount of muscle, no matter what you think goes into building that, multiply it by 10 and it's not the drugs. Do the drugs play a role? For many people they do and for, probably for most, but it's not a drug centric culture, at least I shouldn't say it's not. At the highest levels, at the top of the top pros, it's not drug centric. It's not, hey, he, he, well, again, I don't want to speak for everybody else. But in the low levels, the people who don't make the pros, the people who are, they think they're going to be there, but they don't get there. They depend on the drugs. They never develop the work ethic and, and the drive. They never get there. So if you're dependent on that stuff, you're not going to get there. And I think I developed that mentality every year of being more dependent on the training because I would take more time off than I was on, which is uh, very uncommon in our sport. It was like most people are on all the time and it's like, I'm afraid to go off because I'm losing a bunch of muscle. And I was like, no, man, I feel like I want to learn how to train when I'm not on. I want to teach my how to recover when I'm not on so that when I put it on, when I put exogenous hormones into my body actually grows and responds. It's not like the default anymore. It's just, this is, a, this is like supercharged fuel rather than just, oh, this is just how we live every day. Yeah, so well, I mean, if it, if, it, if it was true that just taking it makes it, then we'd have Mr. Olympia competitors in the gyms all the time because there's a lot of people who well, recreate. As well as me, I think that's what I say, as well as I do, that there's a lot of people in the gym who, who don't look like anything, who take probably more than I ever took at the top of my game. And you're just like, what's going on there? Is it genetics? Yeah, but it's also everything else. And what's important for people listening to acknowledge that the missing, missing link, and you get this as a smart coach, but the missing link at the foundation of it all is skill. Like you don't ask to go play basketball with Kobe Bryant if you can't dribble like Kobe Bryant or maybe not a good example with his recent passing, but uh, say uh, Michael Jordan or, or LeBron James, um, like you don't ask to go play with those guys until you can dribble at their level, pass at their level, at their level, and uh, it'll take you 20 years to get there or more. And that's the missing link, I think, in people building muscle is people just go, I'm just going to go work harder. I'm just going to go eat more. I'm going to take a bunch of steroids. No, man, like you need to spend the 10 years acquiring the precision of skill to ultimately ever have a chance of building any appreciable amount of muscle without injuries, right? Because there's always setbacks. And the better your skill is, the less likely you are to hurt yourself. And there's always stories about Kobe Bryant, and he's one of my favorites, that's why I bring him up, mm -hmm. about how diligent he was with the basics. He's, he's the guy who's in the gym at 4 a.m. doing the stuff that nobody else wants to do because it's simple. And he goes, the reason I can is because I do these things. The reason I'm the best in was because I do these things. And that's really what I preach now. Is that is, I'm like... How can you get really good at the stuff that nobody wants to do? The simplest things, right? The breathing, the walking, the meditation, the, the squatting, the lunging, the deadlifting, like the simplest things. Because when you do that, then other skills very easily stack on top of that. Yeah. Dorian Yates, I saw him at a Swiss conference a bunch of years back. So he was going to do a little seminar and no one's really heard Dorian Yates in Canada do seminars. So the room was packed and he got up there and he just said he did, I think, seven or eight basic exercises really well and really hard, but it was just the basics. Mm -hmm. He's like, That's just what I've been doing for years. You could literally see people be like, that's it. But Dorian, yeah. Dorian trained hard and he did the basics. Hard. He did them well. And that's something that you and I maybe haven't talked about in the mentorship yet, but I think it's important to acknowledge that more time should be invested in developing a skill. And people often attach to variety and this idea of novelty in their exercise. I think there's utility in that at some level, but novelty, novelty can be had simply by changing the rep ranges, simply by changing the density of the workouts. 
it doesn't have to be by changing the exercise. So once you find an exercise, one, that fits your structure, two, that you do well, three, that ideally has a good resistance profile, you go with it, man. You do it, you do it over and over again. And people get bored when they train with me now because it's, hey, man, how many exercises do you do for back? I don't know, four in total. And I do them over. I'm like, why do you do those? Because those are the ones that work. And I don't need, and, and they may not work for you, but they work for me. And based on my structure, these are the best ones that I can do. Skill is near perfect. My ability to focus and stabilize is near perfect. And therefore, the only variety I need, the only, people call it muscle confusion, which obviously we know is nonsense. The only novelty you need can exist within day one, we're going to do I don't know, five sets of six. And, and day two, we may do four sets of eight. And day three, we may do I don't know, five sets of 12, right? It's just these different levels of, uh, and then maybe varying the rest periods. And there's, there's a ton of variety that can exist just within that. Yeah, absolutely. Je- Jeff Bezos always said that your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. You are the intelligent bodybuilder. That's how I heard of you with that title, the intelligent bodybuilder. And the way you approached exercise, from my understanding, was the first for any bodybuilder to look at vectors, to look at uh, moment arms and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about how you take exercise? or your approach to exercise was different than other bodybuilders of your day. I'll tell you the story really briefly. 2007, I almost, I was my first Canadian national championships and I had won the the provincials the year before. And I felt really good about myself going into the Canadians. I felt very confident and about 12 weeks out, I wouldn't say it was an injury, but I, I experienced some tremendous knee pain that really debilitated me for probably five or six weeks to the point I couldn't even walk up the stairs, couldn't walk up or down stairs. So I was like, man, there's no way I can compete. I couldn't do a leg extension, couldn't do anything. So I saw uh, 12 or 15 therapists and nothing made it better. Like I was like, oh man, I'm just screwed. Maybe I need surgery. I got acupuncture. I got everything. I was like, okay, I'm screwed. And then my coach at the time, who is a Canadian legend, Laura Benetti said, Hey, go see this guy, Peter. He's a therapist. I don't know what he does, but he's really smart and does really good stuff. I was like, oh man, I've seen everybody roll my eyes. And I went and see him, went to see him. And uh, so Peter goes, lay down on my table. He's an aspiring bodybuilder as well. And uh, he goes, lay down on my table. And he goes, I'm going to check you out. Uh, he starts like looking at my feet. And I go, Peter, the pain's up here in my knee. He goes, let me do my thing, man. I go, okay. And so he does a little bit of active range stuff and then does some palpable manipulations on my feet. And he goes, okay, get up and see how it feels. I'm like, okay, you know, every therapist does that. And usually it's like, how does it feel? And I'm like, usually the answer is exactly the same. And this time I was like, man, I have absolutely no pain. And this was the right knee. I'm like, I have absolutely no pain in my right knee. It's completely gone. And I, before I couldn't even bend my knee. And, but now I, this is the weirdest thing that ever, and people don't believe this, the exact same pain, which I had never had now existed in my left knee. I didn't have that pain before. I go, dude, what the hell just happened? He goes, oh, I don't know, but I'm like, can you fix it? He goes, yes, but come back tomorrow because I don't have time. So I go back the next day, he fixed my left ankle, and I never have had a knee problem ever since. But the reason I tell that story is because what I didn't acknowledge is the necessity of the, the, the function of my foot and ankle and how that's implicated in my feet. I have a biomechanics background, but nobody had ever said, okay, the way your ankle and foot moves really influences how your knee moves. So Peter and I start talking about training. He starts talking about all this uh, new type of training that he's been doing called RTS. He's actually an RTS instructor who you now know is Tom Purvis. Uh, so Peter was my first introduction to what we'll call intelligent training, what I evolved into what I call intelligent training. And it was really these RTS principles founded by Tom Purvis uh, rooted in physics. And Peter said to me, man, you got to understand the physics of exercise. I was like, what are you talking about? 
I took biomechanics in school. I didn't understand exercise was physics. Like I did, but I was like, well, let's talk about it. So we started looking at, like you say, moment arms and vectors and forces and it just started to blow my mind. And I'm, I became equally as obsessed with learning this stuff as I do, as I am with training as I was with bodybuilding. So I just dove in, man, spent as much time as I could with, with Peter, his business partner, uh, P, um, sorry, uh, Eric Seifert, who's still in Toronto and uh, Tom Purvis. And those guys ultimately gave me a deeper understanding than I could have ever hoped for. So everything I know, ultimately, everything I know has been an extrapolation of what they taught me as a foundation because they don't apply it to Peter, unfortunately, he's passed away, but Eric and, and Tom don't apply it to muscle building directly. So I took everything they do and applied what I've determined to be intelligent muscle building principles. Did you find that that's what allowed your size to get bigger or allow you to shape your body differently? Good question. 2010, I'm preparing for the New York Pro. And so that's three years after my original injury. And I was kind of starting to get, I was very focused on getting as big as I could, as fast as I could. And so I was training correctly, call it correctly, or as, as best I knew how at that point, based on what Peter and, and Tom were teaching me. But I was still very focused on, I'm just going to get as big as I can, as fast as I can. So there was a lot of compounds, a lot of heavy lifts. And what I noticed, I put on a ton of weight that year. So I went from uh, probably 20, 25 pounds in, in 12 months or less. And uh, what I noticed was my strong body parts got really strong and my weak ones got really, stayed really weak. They never got bigger. I was like, well, I'm doing this stuff correctly. Why are these parts growing, these parts not? So I started exploring that and it just set me down this path of just stopping everything I used to do. I was like, I need to just stop just mindlessly doing anything and start becoming present in everything I do. So I started just exploring, like, why do I choose that exercise? Because they never tried to influence my exercise selection. They never tried to influence anything other than, hey, if you're going to do the exercise, let me show you how to do it correctly. So I started looking deeper at the, the way I chose exercises and Everyone's taught when you have a weak body part, and we talk about this, is like, what do you do? Compound exercises. That's always the first thing. You got to do more compounds. You got to do more frequency. You got to do more volume. Those are the three things you typically hear, right? Compound exercises, more volume, more frequency. And, and I did all of those, and, and probably in every different combination. And I didn't grow. I often just got more injured. So um, starting to question all of those things was the key for me to changing how I trained. So point being, I started exploring just doing things with an intention, having a purpose behind everything I did. By doing that, it completely changed my physique. So in 2010, I go on stage in New York Pro, had these great strong body parts and really weak parts, and I hated my physique, hated it. Fast forward 12 months, actually nine months, and my physique looked like a completely different human being where I was much more balanced, way less weak body parts, way less strengths and weaknesses. And that was literally just like having a reason behind everything I did that's when things started to change. So I realized that I was empowered to go from just the guy who trained well, but worked hard to now a guy who put intention behind everything I did. So now every exercise selection, every, the way I did every exercise, the order that I put them in, all those things had a purpose, whether or not it was the right purpose, the purpose was evolving. But so what I noticed to, to answer your question in summary was in the beginning, it was just mindless. And when it became intentional was when I could really shape it in a way that I actually liked yeah. I've heard you say before, like, if you can train one muscle, you can train them all. Yeah. And uh, so it's nice to see that the, your physique actually changed over time. Yeah. If you look at my physique at 2011, 2012, and 2013, that was by far the three best years I've ever had. And that was really when it started to make sense to me. And after 2013, I honestly started to fall off because I didn't want to bodybuild anymore. I had my kids, I, I had lost purpose. I no longer had the pain and I could tell the story behind uh, that. But 
yeah, after 2013, I got second at the Arnold and I missed the Olympia because of my daughter was born. And I was like, man, that's way more important to me than doing Olympia. And after my daughter was born, man, I just didn't have the same purpose. I didn't have the same pain or the drive. I felt love in my heart. And I was like, I just don't have the same anger that I've always had to go out and crush everyone. And so at that point, it was this slow and steady decline moving away from the sport. I don't remember seeing you smiling for like the first four years I knew you. Like online, I just remember all your photos and stuff was very determined, but not the, not the big old smile that you might see. So that, you know, there's a reason behind that. So when I was 17, I was looking for a mentor. I was a kid who was lost and I was looking for people to mentor me and I didn't have any. Like who in bodybuilding was a worthwhile mentor? Not taking anything away from anybody, but there's amazing physiques, but no one that had a great physique, great scientific knowledge, a great understanding of nutrition and was a good human being. So I believed, and I, this is a story I told myself that in order to become a good bodybuilder, you have to train angry. And that's just the story I took. And I hope to impart this on everyone. That's bullshit. You, that now I don't have, you don't have to train angry. You don't have to, to be fearful. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be egocentric. You can have incredible workouts that develop virtue rather than vice. So we're developing character and discipline and perseverance and confidence rather than this idea of chasing carrots rather than running away from sticks. So I want to move toward being the best version of myself in training rather than running away from the pain of, I hate myself, I'm angry, I have to work out, I have to get this done. And that, that simple psychological switch is literally just as simple as changing the framing with what you take into the gym. And now you're becoming a better person. You're embracing the process every minute rather than someone who's ultimately reinforcing this attitude of negativity and pessimism and victimhood. If I hate going to the gym, I have to. I'm a victim to the workout. So it's just changing that framing and that perception can completely change the benefit of exercise. That is the, the new undertone of everything I teach. We can just change the way you perceive things. We can completely change the actual overall arching benefit of the workouts. Yeah. Do you do anything different to, do you have something that you wear that changes like your mindset, like going into the gym versus going home with your kids? Not something I wear. I do anchor like the doorknob or like the handle of the gym and I'll anchor that. And I'm like, who am I becoming now? I usually stop, take a breath. My breathing has become an anchor and I'm usually pretty situationally aware minute to minute where I can shift because when i started my kids were born you can't be the ruthless guy at the gym and then go home and be this caring loving dad and be the same person you have to learn to create avatars for creating these anchors and being different people uh, in the gym again uh, i do absolutely anchor uh, psychological mindsets but for me now it's more of an exploration of me meditative experience during training like how deeply can i take each set and how deeply can i connect in each rep and how much can i disconnect from my thoughts and connect into my feeling so i'm, I'm feeling the muscle and i'm trying to go as deep as i can into first the sensation of end-to-end -end tension in the muscle and then subsequently how much tension can i create over how much time and that's that focus becomes the primary focus in the gym so it's the hard work becomes the the result rather than the goal, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Process driven, right? Yeah. 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 I, I want to rip it back a little bit here because you talk about the, your drive change once you started having uh, your daughter, you have two kids, and right? Son. Yep. I got a son who is 2012 and my daughter's 2013. And Benjamin's your son? Yeah. And Presley. My wife didn't let me name our kids after me. So <laughs> they got Michael and Jackson instead. Man, that's funny. <laughs> uh, Michael and Jackson. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. I'm not even um, like an MJ super fan. It's just after our like dads it. and other stuff. So yeah, I fathered yeah. Michael Jackson. That, that's nice. my claim to fame. I like it. Um, but the mindset changing, and and I can I can attest to that myself. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reason why I ask if you do anything different over the years, I've had to figure out there's work dad, then there's home dad. And my boys, they, they call me toast face because my beard used to be a little thicker. And they said it was like toast. And anytime I hear them say toast face, immediately it just brings me back to where I need to be. Yeah. And sometimes I'll come into the driveway after work. And in my head, I say, okay, work dad is done. Toast face is entering the house. That's great. And I've just found they're able to make that yeah. switch completely different. Yeah. And I was having a conversation with a friend today, same with the gym. When I go to work out, I will wear things that I don't wear at home, obviously. But when I put something on, I'm like, okay, it's training mode. And I found that's effective. I want to get a good workout in, or I want to be like better at home with the kids. Yeah. Just sometimes like, what you wear, how you change your mindset, pretty effective. Yeah. So one of the things I'll do is, is anchoring breath. When I come home, I'll make sure I take three to five breaths where it's just like anchoring a really extended exhalation and relaxing my muscles. And then I bring a smile to my face and I fill my love, my heart with love. And knowing, man, these angels truthfully saved my life. And I, I fill my heart with that feeling before I walk in the door. And when it goes in the gym, it's the opposite. I literally look myself in the eye, like for one of the first exercises, I'm looking myself in the eye and I'm anchoring deep inhalations, fast inhalations. And so, well, first slow, like really long, deep inhalations and then fast inhalations. And it's anchoring a state of sympathetic arousal, intentional sympathetic arousal, where I'm trying to get my nervous system really ramped up. Uh, and I'm looking myself in the eyes because I'm looking into my soul. And that sounds odd, but you know, I'm trying not to see this, the meat suit. I'm trying to look in and say, who are you? And that's the question I often ask myself is, who are you and who are you creating, who are you becoming and, you know, how are you stepping into who you are at your soul level? And so looking deep into my eyes is my way of looking past the meat suit and looking into my power. So I believe every human's power exists in their soul. What does that mean? Most of us are clouded. Our souls are clouded by expectations of society or things the way that we think we need to be or the persona that we're putting out for the public and everyone has that, right? Everyone has that at some level, the less, the better, ideally, I think, but ultimately deep in your soul, you have a soul's purpose. You have an intent. And that is the thing that is most in alignment with your purpose here on earth. And when I see that, when I look at my eyes and see that and feel that I feel connected to being my highest and best. I feel connected to being a warrior, to being a champion, to feeling empowered and that's where your power exists. And if I can tap into that, which I'm getting better at, my workouts always go, like they feel inspired. And I don't have to tap into anything other than that. I don't have to go watch a motivational video. I feel inspired. There's a feeling I get. It's, it's, in, it's in your solar plexus, it's in your chest, it's in your heart. It's, it's almost in my throat where it's, I feel inspired. Like I feel like I could run through walls. And if you can connect with that, I think you're unstoppable. I think you can do exponentially more. You think uh, some of the life lessons you've gained from bodybuilding are easily applicable to business, to um, being a father, to being a husband? Not 100%. So I was you know, talking about this earlier today. The one thing that I think maybe gives me an advantage over other people, but I think anyone can develop this, is I don't have a belief that I can fail. 
I just won't stop. I may not get it the first time. And it may get, you may get it faster than me, but I'm not going to stop. And that way, failure doesn't exist except if you quit. So that belief gives me unlimited confidence that anything I start, I'll do. And if I don't have to, if I can not sleep, like I'll do whatever it takes. And that isn't always a blessing. Sometimes that can be a challenge. But so I'm always aware that if I start something, if it's something that I really want to do, failure doesn't happen. I just keep going and going until I succeed. So that belief is empowering for me. And that's a belief that I've probably learned from bodybuilding. I started off as the, the skinny fat kid who had a learning disability and speech impediment. And I've changed that, right? By stepping into my power and, and losing the story that I carried with me from childhood and overcoming all of those adversities that existed when I was preparing for all of those contests. Because every time there's a contest, you inevitably want to not do it. Your brain goes, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this to myself? Why do I continue to do this to myself when I, at any time I could pull the plug and stop? But you keep going. And uh, that is, I think, that one of the, maybe, maybe one of the many amazing lessons that I've learned from bodybuilding. I still think bodybuilding is the greatest sport on the planet. I just think most bodybuilders are doing it from the victim mentality rather than the empowerment mentality. Uh, what do you mean by that? As I just alluded to, when you go to the gym, you can take on the attitude of, I have to. I don't like this. I don't like myself. I'm fearful. I'm angry. All of those make you a victim to the workout. All of them. If you're going in angry, if you're pissed off at yourself or pissed off at somebody else, you're inevitably a victim to your circumstance. So therefore, you're anchoring more of the victim attitude, right? So we talked about this in the mentorship, whereas like the attitude you carry with you in exercise will be carried with you into life because you're anchoring that deeper and deeper because of the neuroplasticity that exists during exercise. Whereas if I go into the gym and have taken this attitude of I get to work out, I'm celebrating my body, I'm thankful for my body, I'm challenging my body, I'm, I'm developing my discipline, I'm developing virtue. It's this conversation of virtue versus vice, right? Light versus dark, empowerment versus victimhood. It's always black or white. It's which one am I going to step into in this workout? So I can choose to, I have to do this workout. You know, I said, oh God, this sucks. I don't want to do this. You're anchoring victimhood because that, that's it. That's all you are versus like, man, I'm so grateful that I got to do this today. I'm pushing my body to the limit. My body showed up for me today. I think I told you this on the mentorship a few weeks back where I stood in the mirror probably six months ago now. And I just looked at myself you know, naked, get out of the shower. And I looked at all my scars and all my stretch marks and all my, you know, quote unquote imperfections. And I said, thank you. And I said, because like, I'm so banged up in certain places and every injury and every bruise is always just, it's just right there in your face, right? Every wrinkle, every imperfection. And I said, thank you to every one of them individually, because my body showed up for me that day. I, I, I did something that exceeded my body's ability in that moment or outside of what my body was capable of responding to, whether it be a torn muscle or whatever, my body healed itself. I didn't have to do anything. It just healed itself. So I said thank you to every one of those scars and every one of those torn muscles and every one of those wrinkles because your body's showing up for you and you're giving love and gratitude to that body rather than, oh, I hate my scars. I hate my wrinkles. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm like, why don't I just honor it? And now you carry that attitude to life and you feel like you're empowered, man. You step in any situation and your body, man, like this body just showed up for you. You didn't have to, you didn't have to think like your brain just works. You don't have to pump your heart. You don't have to move your lungs. It just shows the, the blood pumps through your veins. You don't have to do anything. It's just there. How about taking that attitude of being empowered to realize you, you've given a, been given a gift rather than go, oh, I hate my body. I look like shit today. I'm fat. Like, it yeah, showed with, up for you. With COVID happening and a lot of people aren't getting workouts in, 
I've always said exercise is a privilege, yeah. right? Like we're very lucky Good. to be able to exercise because not everybody yeah. can. And if, at the end of the day, if the gym is shut down, the road is there. Go for a run, go right? For a walk, do some Hit push the floor, yeah. do yeah. something. Like if your body can do it, imagine people who can't. Man, I think COVID is going to bring a lot more good things than it is bad. I know that sounds, in the time we are, it sounds very hard to believe, but man, everyone's forced to start a new business. You're forced to be creative with your workouts. You're forced to pay attention to your diet. You're forced to be alone with your thoughts sometimes. Imagine that terrible thing, right? You're forced to be alone with your spouse. You're like You're literally being forced to do things you don't want to do which then forces you or maybe gives you the opportunity to develop new solutions. I've seen so many new people developing jobs and businesses. I've been offered four full-time jobs in the last four weeks. I haven't been offered a full-time job in my life. I've always been self-employed and, and I love it. I, I hate working for other people, but people are like, Hey, come be the CEO of my company. I'm like four at the same time. So I'm like, okay, this is really interesting that all these amazing things are happening and we can choose to step into that and go, there's opportunities out there that are being created right now. Maybe I can create my own opportunity. Or uh, I can choose to be a victim to it and go, oh, this is such a terrible time and the world's imploding. Of course, but it's a cycle. It's a season, man. We're going through winter. Spring is coming. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Yeah. Uh, uh, adversity leads to opportunity, right? 100%. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people are definitely taking that by the horns and they're running with it. And uh, mm -hmm. like you were saying before, you're forced to do all these things. You're forced to slow down. The, the world goes really fast. Yeah. I don't know about you. I've been lucky. I've been having a tremendous amount of time with my family that I didn't have before. More than ever. Traveling, working, teaching, all these other things. Yeah. And it was funny. I got to take over the curriculum and me and my wife, we, we taught our kids school. She's a teacher. I got a teaching degree, but I haven't taught in years, little people, but I got to do, and it was a lot of fun. I had the kids, we do phys ed. And then we were learning about insects and they were right into it. And you know what happened this morning specifically? I'm at the table eating breakfast and I'm reading a book. That's part of my routine. My six-year-old comes and he's got a book with him. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I want to sit down and read with you. I said, okay, go for it. He just started reading four months ago. And now he, he sits at the table and we were able to sit down and read together this morning. If, if COVID didn't exist, I would have no. been on my third client already. I would have left the house before he woke up. So yep. there's some, some definite opportunities with this going on. Um, 100%. I really like that segue. I just want to go into our last point here for you. Ben, this has been very insightful for me. And uh, you, you've been a very insightful person for a lot of people in fitness. And especially because the, the big picture, what you get out of exercise isn't just exercise. Yeah. I want you to imagine this for a second. You're probably going to live to be 140. I just have a feeling you're going to be one of those guys. You're going to figure it out. But eventually you're going to die. We're all going to die. So yeah. you're dead and someone is then writing your book. They're writing a book on you. How would you like that last chapter to look? If a book's written about Ben Pakulski, what's that last chapter about? What's it going to look like? I'm still inspiring and energizing people in their 20s. And I want to show up as my highest and best until the day that I die. I don't want to slow down. I, I want to have the energy for me and everybody else. I hope to be a wise teacher. I hope to be a wise leader. I think my greatest value in life is wisdom. The thing that I attach to is like, how do I become someone who, who is providing value to everyone they meet? And whether or not that's my inadequacy talking or that's my value, I just really love understanding things. I love solving problems for me, solving problems for you, and putting the biggest problems in front of me and going, okay, I can figure out a way to get to the end of this problem. So 
uh, I guess at the end of life, I want to be someone who's got a smile on his face, is, is incredibly energized, which means I must be fit and healthy and I'm um, helping people to live their greatness. And this sounds so cliche, but I see greatness in everyone I meet. And, and that's hard because some people do have darkness in them, but I still see the darkness as their, man, I have darkness in me and so do you. And darkness is my greatest asset. It's one of my greatest attributes. It's what drove my success and what drives my confidence. Knowing that you have this fire in you that most people don't ever aren't ever able to access gives you a sense of certainty, like a sense of confidence. So when I see darkness in people, I don't condemn them. I just hope, I wish them, I hope that they can you know, ultimately uh, see the other side of that darkness and find the other side of that darkness. And I just hope that I can in any way stand in strength beside people who are intentionally trying to find their greatness. And, and I don't egocentrically attached to be able to help everybody because that's obviously not possible, but I just want to stand in strength. What that means is I'm going to stand with you and allow you to know that you're accepted and you can find it on your own. You are stronger than you think. And I say this to my kids all the time. This may be a relevant one for you. Like, I'm not here to make you stronger. I'm here to show you how strong you already are. And that gives me chills up my spine because I, I realize that human beings are so much stronger than we ever give ourselves credit for. And somebody's told you that you're not. And I just want to be the person who says, I accept you. I don't judge you. We, you. Your strength is there. You're strong enough to find it. You don't need anybody's help. You find it. I, I can guide. I can support. But I'm not going to help you. You do it. So anyways, that, that's hopefully how I, I can be remembered in my 140 years of wisdom. I feel that everybody's purpose on this planet is to, to leave the planet better than when they arrived. And I think that hands down, that's going to happen when your day finally comes. Thanks. You've done a lot of it already. And because of that, I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me today. This was very influential for myself and hopefully the people that, that listen moving forward. So thank you so much for your time today, Ben. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you, man. Awesome. Take care. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we'll be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it. 